Welcome to Magic and Mayhem. Discover the secrets to creating magnificent books for kids and teens. Magic and Mayhem is a free podcast and ebook series brought to you by the Australian Writer Centre. If you're interested in writing for kids and teens, join us on a journey that's set to inspire and enhance your own writing skills. Download your free Magic and Mayhem ebook at magicandmayhem.com.au. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm founder of the Australian Writers' Centre and through this podcast series you've heard from picture book authors, chapter book authors and now we're going to hear from middle grade authors. Now if you don't know, middle grade isn't really a genre or a format the way picture books and chapter books are. Middle grade refers to the age of the readers, somewhere between 8 and 12 years old, but the topics of the stories themselves can really vary. Our first middle grade author is Tristan Banks. When you think of middle grade fiction, you might not immediately think crime thriller, but that's exactly what Tristan writes. His books are real page turners that suck you in from the very first page. As you'll hear in this interview, I was really struck by how Tristan makes his world believable by putting in lots of little observations. He's got a great eye for small details. He's also got a wonderful sense of pacing, which is important for a thriller. What's interesting is that he says that the pacing doesn't really start to find its rhythm until draft five or six. So if you think you need to get everything perfect in the first draft, think again. Have a listen and enjoy. Thanks so much for joining us, Tristan. No problem. Thanks for having me. I have in my book, I'm not in my book, I have in my hand your book, The Fall. Now, For any listeners who haven't read the book yet, can you tell us what it's about? It's about a kid who's 12 going on 13 who witnesses a crime through the rear window of his father's apartment one night and the perpetrator of that crime knows that he's the sole witness and comes after him. And I I think it's – I love it. It is a page turner. You are hooked in from page one. Now, I am a woman in – her 40s, far cry from being a teenager boy, and yet I was in this boy's shoes. I think this is an excellent book, Tristan. Um, Tell me, where did the idea come from? It comes from something, uh, my favourite line from a book ever is, or the one that sticks in my mind is, I was 12 going on 13 when I first saw a dead human being. And it's from Stephen King's novella, The Body, that was in different seasons, and it was turned into the movie Stand By Me. And mm. I think it's I think it's something like that is the opening line of the movie too. And I just loved that movie when I was a teenager. I loved yeah. I loved the book. I have reread and reviewed those over the years. I still do now. I think it's just recently on um, Netflix, actually, Stand By Me. And it's just great storytelling. And I recently, or a few years ago, I was sort of thinking – um, you know, have I ever seen a dead human being? And I thought, no, I don't think I have. And then I remembered when I did work experience with Channel 10 News when I was in high school, I was in year 10 or 11, and I got to follow a news cameraman around Sydney for a whole week. And we went to big sporting events, the Australian Open Golf, and we went to crime scenes. And it was like, it was the greatest week of my life to that point. <laughs> and um, we went to this crime scene in King's Cross, <clears throat> excuse me, where sure. a, uh, a a man had grabbed a woman's handbag, run off through a park, jumped over a fence at the back of the park to get away, 
And what he didn't realize was that the fence at the back of the park was actually on top of a multi-story car park built into Mm. the hill. And he fell to what I think was his death. I, d- I don't know for sure, but I th- that's my memory of it. And I can't find the story because they've deleted all the tapes from that era. Um, mm. But um, I think that's what happened. And I, I remember shooting. We, we shot from up on top of the, the park looking down. at You know, there were police and there were ambulance people and there were forensics and things. And then we went down and we were shooting this piece to camera with Harry Potter, who mm. is the that was the Channel 10 crime reporter. And when I tell this story, kids are kids are fascinated by the fact that his name was Harry <laughs> Potter, um, and he was invented before Harry Potter was invented. Yes. <laughs> and I just wondered. But so the big question for me was, what would it be like if your parent was a crime reporter and you got to go to scenes like this all the time, and you as a kid got you know the insight into crime scenes that you know most kids would not. And, uh, and that sort of started me thinking about, um, you know, a kid that was in that situation whose father was a crime reporter. Wow. So that's really interesting. Now, you've told us kind of like the genesis of how of this idea and how it started. I'm curious to know whether you thought about everything that you just said then in a matter of seconds or a matter of <laughs> months. <laughs> well, years, years. It took me, you know, it was actually five years from – my um, zero draft or my, you know, just exploratory draft right through to uh, the publication. So I initially I wrote a draft that was set in Sydney. It was about a kid who was on work experience with Channel 10 News and followed this news um, uh, person around, the camera operator. So it was very autobiographical. And then I went traveling with my family for about six months to Europe and I saw Rear Window again on the plane, the Alfred Hitchcock Mm. movie. And I thought, well, it feels quite diluted, the story at the moment where he's traveling all over the city. And I thought, how can I contain it? And I thought, well, maybe what if he was in, staying in his father's apartment and he saw this crime through the rear window and uh, and perhaps he's never met his father before. You know, maybe his parents grew um, broke up before he was born and his his mother has never wanted – thinks his dad's irresponsible, never wanted him to meet his dad. Um, but then finally he's had he's had an operation – his mum has to has to uh, work, and finally she's sort of given in, and she'll let him go and stay with his dad for a week. And that's when he witnesses this this crime of someone uh, pushed, actually, uh, from or 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 you know, uh, sent over the over the balcony of the of a sixth floor apartment mm, in the middle of the night. Yes. Um, so you get into it's from the point of view of of this thirteen year old boy or soon to be thirteen year old boy, and and it's written in first person. So you really do in the reader is really very much in this teenage boy's world. How do you, what did you need to do to get into the mind of a teenage boy? Part of it was that I gave him an operation that I had when I was 12 going on 13. Um, oh. I My left leg was about uh, four or five centimetres shorter than my right and so I, I was sort of slightly, you know, slanted, tilted to one side kind of thing. And so I had an operation where I had six metal staples put into my right knee in order to mm. slow down the growth of my right leg so that my left leg could catch up. And I thought, I'm going to give Sam Garner, this kid, that operation, and mm. that'll help me to get into what it felt like. Uh, it also gives a reason why he's gone to stay with his dad, but it'll, yeah. it'll help him feel like me. And I also sometimes in my – early drafts, my zero drafts or exploratory drafts, 
I'll call the character Tristan as well in order to right. in order to feel as though I, as though they are me in some way. That is fascinating that you gave him that same operation to get into <laughs> well your mind as a thirteen year old. I guess. Yeah. Wow. So. Yeah. The, there's lots of little details in this, and I'm not giving anything away, like um, uh, the reference to his mother getting him to take magnesium, which I had to laugh out loud because everyone these days tells me to take magnesium <laughs> <laughs> really? as the you know, solution to all ills. And, yeah. you know, just little things like 85% cacao in the, dark cho- in the chocolate. And there's just little things that, that, that you add to the story that um, that seemed to me the result of just incredibly astute observation from your part, not, not ne- I mean, just about human behaviour and about things that humans and do and, and, and things that we experience. Do you consciously, well, first of all, do you agree that comes from observation? And if so, do you consciously make yourself do that and write stuff down that you observe or... Is it just something that comes naturally to you? <laughs> um, I don't. Te- I do tend to. In the morning, I'll wake up and I'll do morning pages, which is a sort mm. of lag from you know having read The Artist's Way twenty years ago or something. And you know, I'm a big fan of Natalie Goldberg's writing down the bones as well. Um, I try to meditate um, whenever I can, which I guess is about getting down into where you are at that moment. So I guess all of those things help you to be an observer of what's around you. Um, but I also I'm very conscious when I'm writing fiction that I'm trying to write, make it feel as real as I possibly can. And I think maybe because I'm not 12 going on 13 right now, I really try even harder to imbue it with details of the real world in order to make this fiction seem like fact. Mm-hmm. One of the things also about this book is the pacing seems to be spot on and as a reader, I have that sense of I can't. I'm clutching my sort of like the top of my chest at the moment to, to give you a, <laughs> an indication. I have this feeling right there that, and I'm almost short of breath as I just want to know what's happening in the next scene. Um, what do you do consciously, or what do you do from a technical point of view to keep the reader feeling that? Hmm. I write a lot of drafts over a very long period of time and the first draft is terrible pacing and it's all over the place and it's uh, it goes and shoots off in a million different directions and then the first draft and the second and the third and the fourth all of those drafts are very like the pacing is all out I either deliver too much information right up front and you know exactly what's going on or I or I make it too cryptic and no one knows what's going on so mm-hmm. I, I I keep all those drafts to, to myself until I get to about a fifth or sixth draft and uh and they're drafts that sometimes, you know, will take between two and if I'm out in the world talking about the books and things, sometimes they might take up to four months or five months or something to write the, the 50,000-word draft. Each. Each. Yeah. Each time. So what yeah. do you? What are you physically doing? In, like when you move from draft two to three or three to four or whatever, what is in your head of this is what I need to do or change? What do you – what's your barometer or benchmark or whatever of what you need to take away or add? Mm, I'll, I'll print it out um, or sometimes as I get further into the draft, I will record, voice record 
the entire draft. I'll just read it. I've put it aside for a month or two months or sometimes you know, I'm just about to read a draft of something that I wrote six months ago. And so when you come back, you know, you're pretty fresh on it and you know exactly mm-hmm. what stinks and what bores you. And so you, you know, I just, when I'm, when I first read it back, I'll just have a pencil in hand, but I won't write extensive notes. I'll just put a dot or a question mark or a smiley face or very, very, you know, um, and then I'll stop each quarter of the manuscript. So when I get to the sort of major turning points, you know, sec, uh, inciting incident or uh, midpoint or second act turning point, I will stop and I'll write notes on that and I'll go, uh, terrible, um, stinks, boring. <laughs> uh, but there is that one scene that's kind of interesting uh, in the bathroom. And then I'll, I'll read the next quarter and then I'll, I'll just write notes at the end of that quarter. And, you know, again, oh, gosh, what am I doing? This is the worst <laughs> thing I've ever written. And then the third and then at the end. And so I do that for three or four drafts. And it's only about the fourth draft that I'm actually writing possibly more positive notes than negative or starting to see that it could really be something. Now, is this process, this doing this every quarter uh, of your manuscript, is this process something that evolved over the years for you or something that you learnt somewhere? I just think that if I save it all up till the end, um, I will have a bit of a messier idea of whether it works or not. And no one's ever going to read the whole book necessarily in one, one sitting or, you know, not too many people are going to read an entire book in one sitting. And I also think, you know, if I think of it in kind of units of action, I can know that, wow, the opening, once it, I get into a few drafts, I'm like, oh, wow, the opening is really working well. It's only those second and third quarters that are really lagging and I'm falling, literally falling asleep when I'm reading it back. Um, and, then, and then you go, and then it comes home really strong. So at least I can isolate which parts of the manuscript aren't working and which are. Um, so, and I think it's a bit of a lag from having learnt to write fiction by writing screenplays as well. So I yes. still sort of, I very much think in terms of first, second and third acts. And I, mm. and I think in terms of a midpoint and I think in terms of those sort of waypoints without, within the story that are just going to give you something to hang on to, something to, you know, and I don't, I don't think too much about that when I wrote, write my first one, two, three drafts. It's about mm. a third draft when I've just dived in and I'm, I'm just writing what comes to me and then I get to the third draft and it's still a mess and it's frustrating me and then I start to really think okay well what's the structure of this thing why is it not working and and then I make a bit of an outline and 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 start to sort of um you know consider that structure more so you do have a background with screenwriting in the acting world so when you approach a book like this the fall and you say that you you know you do have that tendency to go through to that to the to the three act structure um do you, have you mapped out that three act structure and the various plot points before you write the bulk of it um not so do you know what's in- happening not in the first and second, maybe third drafts. No, I tend to now. I used to. I used to map it very tightly and put step outlines up on the wall and be and know exactly what every chapter was going to be. And then I'd think, well, if I just write to that, then I'm going to have a book. And that was, I guess, in the first few books that I wrote because I wanted to know that I could get to the end. Um, whereas now I feel like I've written enough books to know I will get to the end. Um, I am going to, I am going to follow through with this. I don't doubt myself as much. Well, I do. I doubt myself in many other ways, but, um, (laughs) but in in terms of finishing the thing, I know, I know I can, and I can sort of trust in my kind of structural understanding 
on those first few act, uh, first few drafts without being too explicit mm. about that, without tying myself down too early because all those discoveries and all those dead ends lead to perhaps just one little interesting scene or interesting detail or a strange turn of phrase that you wouldn't have come up with had you been writing too specifically to an outline. Mm. That's the way it is for me anyway. So when you are writing and you're not off uh, on the promotional trail or visiting schools or doing your author talks, I know you're very active doing those sorts of things, but when you're in the depths of your writing, what's your typical day like? I will try to wake up at 6 o'clock if I can and get half an hour to an hour's writing done of just first up just morning pages, three pages flat out. Um, I might try to do some meditation, maybe five or ten minutes. With the morning pages, can we just clarify, are you writing anything to do with your manuscript or you're just writing whatever's in your head? At first it will be whatever's in my head and it might be the sounds of the birds or it might be um, that I'm really cold and tired and hungry and, you know, I wish I had a regular job with superannuation (laughs) and holiday pay and – or, you know, why have I done this and I'm in the middle of this draft of this book and I know it's never going to turn out, And you know. Or I may have w- woken up really positive and I'll be, wow, I'm so lucky to live this life and, you know, it'll vary. And then at some stage towards the middle or a couple of pages into the three pages that I write, I'll sort of say, so what is this story about? And I'll start telling myself the story. It's about this kid who witnesses this crime, but what is the crime and how does his dad have something to do with it? Um, and I'll start to sort of just free associate ideas. And by the end of that that page or two of writing the actual story, it'll send me off into the manuscript. And it may not be exactly where I finished yesterday. It may send me back or forward in the manuscript. And I'll just start mm-hmm. writing that scene or chapter that I have the most energy on at that time. I don't, I don't worry. I, I tend to write scenes out of order if that's what I'm excited about and that's what's flowing most easily. And do you um... – aim for uh, get, getting to certain milestones when you're writing a book, I must achieve by this chapter, by this time, or, or anything like that? Um, I used to, and I used to be much more structured and organised, and I was much more afraid of having a messy first draft. So the step outline made sure that my first draft was not atrocious, whereas mm-hmm. now I tend to just dive in, and so you end up with a really messy first draft, but I can I can cope with a greater level of chaos in the manuscript now than I used to be able to. Um, I can be okay with it. And so now I'm probably not, you know, I used to say, right, 2,000 words a day. Got to do yes. 2,000 words a day. Be very strict on it. Yes. Now I find that the books tend to, especially the novels um, that are a bit more layered and their um, mystery sort of stuff that I'm really trying to work out the pacing of. Um, yes. They tend to they tend to want to be written more at like a thousand words a day rather than two. Interesting. Okay. Mm. So now I'm very jealous of you, Tristan. <laughs> Why? Because in your Instagram <laughs> feed, I because I you know you you've got these photos of this thing which I assume is your writing studio, <laughs> which um, looks like it is straight out of a magazine, like uh-huh. it really is. And uh-huh. not only that, because it's, it's all really white and gorgeous and there's these windows that are just beautiful <laughs> that look out to, you know, the outside world. And in the foreground there is this absolutely gorgeous retro typewriter 
So I have so many questions on this (laughs) Let's first talk about the typewriter. Uh, Do you actually write on it or is it a prop for Instagram? (laughs) (laughs) I do actually write on it. And the reason I got it from Charlie Foxtrot, uh, the typewriter specialists in Australia, I – I got the typewriter because I get incredibly stale and bored opening up the laptop every day and staring into this bright screen that kind of glows back at me and I'll do anything to avoid months and months of doing that. Um, so I'll, I'll handwrite um, parts of the manuscript uh, on you know notepaper and then I'll photograph it and then I'll airdrop those photographs to my computer and then I'll drop those photos of the, the written pages into my, um, my growing manuscript. Um, and I'll also do that with typewritten pages. Some days I'll just want to bash it out and hear the ding and yeah. sometimes the yeah. ribbon needs replacing or whatever and yes. you get the ink on your fingers and you're, you know, you're physically doing stuff and it feels so yeah. much better sometimes. So it then does. I'll photograph the typewritten pages and I will paste those into my manuscript. <laughs> and uh, and so the, the actual, the zero draft manuscript, the, you know, my first crack at it, is a sort of uh, of the new one that I'm just about to read again after six months of being away from it, is this yeah. Frankenstein's monster of laptop, handwritten and typewritten pages. And, oh, uh, and I'll, wow. Yeah, so I'll just print that out and then I'll, I'll read the, the Frankenstein thing because, I mean, half the stuff that I typewrite probably isn't going to end up in the manuscript anyway, so there's no point transcribing it too early, I don't think. Yes, you're right. I love that. So, yeah, sometimes just the physicality of batching out the keys is strangely satisfying. Yeah. Now, I have to ask about the studio itself because I had this fantasy, right, because <laughs> I watched this movie, I don't know if you've seen it, called Tamara Drew. Oh. And um, oh, it's set somewhere in the English countryside and one of the characters is a writer with a writer's studio. Uh, in their, you know, sprawling country lawn or something. And when I was living in the Yarra Valley on 14 acres, I thought I want a studio just like Tamara Drew. So I went down this path to attempt to do that. It was a complete disaster. (laughs) (laughs) Why? It was a complete disaster. We ended up burning it. (laughs) (laughs) How? Why? Oh, because you think your manuscript was Frankenstein. This studio was Frankenstein it was I don't know it was just the wrong 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 idea from the start I started off with the shell of a studio it had nice idea in theory um which the local TAFE students had built and wanted to discard I said I'll have it and I'll make it into my studio (laughs) yeah well that was just stupid because I can't hammer a nail or anything like that um so it sat there for um, I don't know, a year or so. <laughs> yeah. It just as a as a facade or as a shell and never got made into anything. And eventually we realized that it was never going to be made into anything. And it was really an eyesore on the property. So it it um So you it burnt it into- to the ground. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I heard did you hear that Kate DiCamillo, the amazing children's author who wrote mm-hmm. Tale of Despero and uh uh, Edward Tulane and lots of amazing stories. I, yeah. I think it's her that I heard on a podcast who actually physically burns her first draft manuscripts and oh. and then and then just starts again on the second draft, but just with that in the back of her mind, but without, you know, in a potbelly stove, it's it's gone up in smoke. Oh my goodness, I don't think I could do that. Yeah, I know. I it's could, brave, I isn't could it? Burn a building, but not my words. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but tell me about the studio. Do you fight now? You have you previously told me that um, you built it, well, or you got it built um, some months ago because you didn't have one before. How ha- has it changed the way you write or anything? And why did you decide to build it? This is well, presumably in your backyard. Yes, and I've always dreamed of having a writing space. I have yes. had carved one out of the house every now and then, but then a child would grow larger and needed to <laughs> um, take it over. And I sort of discovered that actually when I have a writing space, I don't use it and I tend to go out and I, you know, I, I walk around and I go to cafes and I go to libraries and I go and I tend to get annoyed by by being in one place at one time. But I did do 50 blog interviews with lots of different writers from like John Boyne who wrote The Boy in the Striped Pajamas to Toby Riddle, the amazing illustrator, to lots of different people um, on their writing studios and the, the association between um, their writing space and the work they do. And uh, and I was so obsessed with it. And so I sort of stole some ideas from all those, you know, all those different spaces. Um, and then my wife is, I, I threw up my hands and said, look, it's never going to get built if I have anything to do with it. And so my wife <laughs> is an amazing designer and she takes a lot of the shots that appear on my Instagram. The, the best mm-hmm. shots are, are hers. And uh, she um, she did have the sort of stick to to um, design it and to work with the builder and to work with the many trades people. And she's very – whereas I would have sort of said, oh, yeah, no, nah, whatever you want to do and, yeah, don't worry about that. And, no, that'll be okay <laughs> just to make it easy. She was happy to sort of work through challenges and, and make it the way she wanted it. And so mm. we ended up with this amazing space with a loft and all this light. Wow. And these old windows that are sort of um, from a um, from a sort of recycling place. And then wow. I don't know, it's a really – and it's been quite life-changing um, in terms of just our life as a family. But um, in terms of writing, it's such a nice place to be in early in the morning. Um, yes. But I still – to tell you the truth – I still don't write in it all the time and I'm quite often I'm just as likely to be found at the dining table or out in a cafe or sitting in a hotel or motel somewhere in a place that I'm speaking. So I really right. I, I use it as a writing space but I'm not I'm not um, locking myself in there because I just get bored. I just get yeah, bored. Yeah, mm. Well, this is the reason I'm very jealous but let's move on to <laughs> – we mentioned that you are often doing author talks, schools, you know, um, appearances. Uh, let's talk a little bit about that. When, what, firstly, why do you do them? Secondly, what kinds of things do you do most of? Are, are they school visits or do you do general author talks at libraries and festivals and that sort of thing? Maybe you could tell us like the split or the proportion um, and about what proportion of the year do you do that? Okay, I do probably um, between three and four months of the year I am speaking um, and I spend a write for about seven to eight months of the year and I take a break for about a month of the year. Um, and I've worked out this over, you know, several years of, uh, you know, trying and doing too much speaking and not enjoying it and then doing too little speaking and thinking I could have done a bit more and then finally sort of getting a mix that seems to work for me. And so I um, I do quite a lot of school visits. I probably I probably do between ninety and a hundred days of speaking in the year, which I know sounds like wow. a lot. I it know is. it is it is a lot, <laughs> but you know what? Yeah, there's no point writing a book and then nobody knowing it exists. And even though 
Um, we have really, like I'm with Penguin Random House and their publicity team are fantastic and amazing and they do heaps of work and they get you out there in lots of publications and TV bits and radio bits. But I just feel like everything's so fragmented that the number of people that will see that that newspaper bit or the magazine bit or the radio mm-hmm. bit or whatever is so is so small that um, it really helps to go directly to your readers and tell them about the story and try to bring it to life in fun ways using video and images and music and maps and all that sort of stuff. Um, it also helps as a as a author for kids and teenagers to be constantly having a conversation with them about and trying stuff out. Like oh, the first chapter of The Fall, I was up in a school on the Sunshine Coast. It was Friday afternoon at about two o'clock and I had a group of year nines, about 150 year nine kids. And I was like, oh no, it's going to be disaster and they're going to riot and what am I going to do? <laughs> and out of desperation, I thought, oh, well, I've got that chapter that um, that I'm writing for that book and I'm going to I'm gonna read that. And, and I sort of thought it could go either very badly, but it actually they sat there and listened to this story and they were totally kind of leaned in. And it was mm. the reading of that first chapter that actually gave me confidence in the rest of the book. I thought, oh, right, wow. okay. If I can capture that that notoriously difficult group, um, yes. then perhaps you know perhaps I'm onto something, and I should should dig in and 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 keep on writing this book. So okay. it's, a, it's a useful thing. <clears throat> so you decided to read the first chapter of the fall for that one. Do you normally just uh, d- tailor some kind of bespoke thing to each um, visit, or do you have a a, a, a set presentation that you you would use how does that all work like what do you actually think or map out when somebody says hey can you come and talk to you well I try to change the talk every year based on you know a new book coming out so I mm. I don't want it to be that people who have seen me speak before go oh yeah I've heard him speak four years ago and it was exactly the same thing yeah. um, with it with every book each book has a different process and you learn new things and you gather together different images and I create a, a soundtrack for every book that I listen to over and over again as I write so I tend to um, play a bit of that when I when I speak so all of those things change with each book so one thing is that I for each book I develop new new material and new anecdotes and things um, and it takes a while it's really hard I find it very difficult to develop a talk in a vacuum kind of thing when you're not mm. in front of people you're just sitting in a room going okay um, what can I talk about you know I, I find it very <laughs> difficult um, but I but I do I develop it for, and so not each talk will have a bespoke thing, but I'll have a keynote that I that I generally use um, for each talk. But then this morning, for instance, I spoke to a group of 150 kindergarten to year six kids in one room all at once for an hour. Wow. Um, which usually – Like sp- live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. usually I'm speaking to sort of say year five to year eight kids, which is sort of right in the core for, you know, all of my books I can talk about. Yes all of my books in that, in that, um, for that age group. But cause you've got kindergarten kids there and they're wriggly and they'll ask you random questions about whether you've got a pet guinea pig and stuff, um, <laughs> which is fun, you know, cause they make, they keep it alive. There are certain things I went, I, I tended to veer towards the younger books, which are the my life series of short mm. stories that Gus Gordon illustrates. So I know that that'll work for, you know, five to 12 year olds across the various ages. And so 
I'm telling anecdotes. I'm pulling out every funny thing that um, that I know kind of gets an audience. I'm showing them pictures of illustrations. I'm showing them pictures of when I was a kid and embarrassing things that I did. Um, and, you know, and I know that, but then if I gave a talk to that year nine group, you know, directly afterwards, it'd be a much different, um, it'd be a much different talk. You know, I'd, I'd lean sure. towards the, the fall and I would do a reading of the opening chapter of the fall, which I would never do for kindergarten kids because no. it's a bit too scary for them. <clears throat> but let's take those two examples. I just like, I'm interested to do this because you're quite the master at the author talk because you've done yeah. more than anyone I know. <laughs> um, <laughs> so let's take those two examples, kindergarten and year nine. With the kindergarten, do you kind of have a, a storage spot in your brain of different story stories you can pull out and have an hour's worth for younger people and uh, or, or and do you decide that before you even get there or do you just read the room and wing it um i re i read the room but i know in my presentation I have material that'll skew younger and material that'll skew skew older. So I'll either begin at the beginning, which is the youngest stuff, or wow. I'll begin, or I'll or I'll cue it to begin in the middle, where I have four or five slides chosen from the younger material, and then I go straight into something like The Fall and Two Wolves, my other book for sort of yes. you know ten year olds and up. Um, so yeah, it's a bit like that. I just know that okay. there is older and younger stuff and I know I can get an hour out of the younger stuff and I know I can get an hour of the older stuff and I, I just do a mix. So it's partly winging it but within the world of things that I have tried before and that I know work. And typically are you talking about your journey or your characters in the books or the writing process? As in for um, them, the writing, you know, giving them tips on a writing process. A, a bit of all of that, but I try not to be too didactic. Um, I want to give them, most of all, I want to give them a fun time around books. I want them to go, to be coming right. in going, oh, this author, I've never seen an author talk before or I hate reading or whatever. Because mm. um, you got to, I guess you assume that and then it's a real bonus if the kids are book freaks and they love reading and they're really happy to have you there. But for, for the sceptical kids, I want them to come in and go, uh, and then go, oh, actually, that was really fun. He just told us a whole bunch of stories. He told us what he was like as a kid. He read us story, like bits out of his book that were fun or interesting. He showed us um, some video bits that he'd shot that seemed interesting as well. And then at the very end, he said, these are my top five writing tips. And they mm -hmm. sort of connected the dots between a bunch of the other things that he'd mentioned. And I think the teachers like that bit at the end that you sort of wrap it up by saying, hey, I've showed you how I use images, how I use video, how I get outside to write, how mm -hmm. I um, how I rewrite and rewrite. I'll show I'll show that my sort of um, a screen capture of all my drafts of the book, a list of them to, you know, I'll say this may be devastating to some viewers because <laughs> I know, you know, and who here loves rewriting and, you know, only two kids <laughs> and who hates it. And they all put up their hands and I'll say, well, mm -hmm. just so you know, we get told to rewrite all the time, too. It doesn't just come out. <laughs> perfectly so I'll, I'll slip in educational bits but I try not to be boring about it because my job is to give them fun time around books and not to just be teacherly sure sure so what's next for you what are you working on now what's the next book we can expect my next book is I'm writing uh the next book in the my life series this is the sixth mm. book in the series and they're 25,000 word books of short stories um illustrated and they're 
fun and they're really they're, they're based on things that happened to me when I was a kid but then I exaggerate those stories and kind of you know fictionalize them and uh, and they're really fun to write especially in between drafts of a novel it's great to just go and write something that its only purpose is to be entertaining and fast-paced mm. and and engaging so yeah. I'm writing writing I'm finishing off uh, the last of those stories and getting them to my editor and that'll come out next year and in and then over the next six months, I'm hoping to push from a zero draft of the of my next book, which is about a lockdown in a school, um, oh, wow. through to through to maybe by by say February, I hope to have you know to have written maybe a first, second, third draft. So I'll right. be at the point where I think that it's that I shouldn't that I should just give up and never write again. <laughs> and then on the, and then the fourth draft, hopefully, I'll I'll bring it home. It's pretty consistent. I, I say that sort of thing with kids but but it really is consistent that that fourth draft is the is the time when the characters actually start to feel like you know they feel a bit more human and you know who they are so it's worthwhile pushing through to the fourth draft yes all right well that's that's you know can't wait for that to come out i'm sure it's going to be awesome in the same way and and, as well as the my life book but the fall is is fantastic everyone should go read it it's um it's it's not just for young boys or girls for that matter i i was riveted i thought it was really really well written so congratulations on the book and thank you so much for your time today tristan thank you thank you for being so kind Tristan often referred to his zero draft or his exploratory draft. This is so important. If you listen to our regular main podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, you'll know that we bang on about this a lot. You have to get the words down and they don't have to be perfect. So I really like the way Tristan calls this an exploratory draft. He's just testing out ideas, seeing what the story is. There's a real art to writing compelling books for children and that's why it can be so helpful to do a writing course that delves into this genre. For an in-depth look at writing for kids, tweens and teens, check out How to Write for Children and Young Adults. It's a great course at the Australian Writers' Centre. To find out more, go to writerscentre.com.au slash children'sauthor. That's writerscentre.com.au slash children'sauthor. As I mentioned in the introduction, Tristan's stories have a great sense of pacing, but as you heard, it can take five or six drafts before he gets to the point that he thinks the flow is working. Breaking down the manuscript, his Frankenstein manuscript, I love how he calls it that, breaking that into chunks helps him to identify which parts are lagging and which are getting into shape. But my favourite part is what Tristan said about doing school visits. There's no point writing a book if no one's going to read it. He likes to go directly to his readers and bring his stories to life for them. Tristan is an absolute master at this, and it's no easy skill, I know. He has the benefit of coming from an acting background. But I think anyone who wants to be successful as a middle-grade author really does need to work on putting together engaging presentations for kids. Okay, you may never get to the point of doing 90 days of talks a year, but think about how you can present your manuscript to a room full of school kids. What stories can you tell? What images do you have? How can you even turn the most sceptical kid into a diehard and lifelong fan? And with that thought, I'll catch you next time. Oh yes, if you want to connect with me, just reach out on Instagram or Facebook. I'm Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Instagram. But most of my posts on Insta are about my art, 
or head on over to our regular podcast group on Facebook and connect with me there, as well as a bunch of other authors. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community on Facebook and request to join. It's free. See you in the group.